And given that most startups have a, uh, a relatively limited runway, they have limited resources, as a leader of a small company, you just have to think, you just have to kind of assess if that's really the right way to go. Because for every Nielsen, there's probably 20 other smaller companies right. out there that would be more likely to be customers, more interested in working with a small company. And, you know, the advantage of small companies is then they can get some proof points. Thank you for listening. This is Brett Trainer, your host for Hardwired for Growth, a podcast where we strive to help entrepreneurs and business owners not only grow their businesses, but scale them. We do this by having conversations with industry experts and the entrepreneurs who have successfully scaled their own businesses. Statistics show that only 5% of all startups ever achieve annual revenue of a million dollars and less than 1% reach 10 million. Our mission is to help more than double the number of companies that reach each of those thresholds. The voice you heard a moment ago is that of Michael Himmelfarb. Michael's the CEO and founder of InnoEQ, a company that helps startups navigate the journey of working with large enterprise organizations. It is a cautionary tale for startups on where they should be placing their bets on growth. In the early days, if you go all in with a large enterprise organization, it really could be an all or nothing bet. But with the right perspective and approach, you can be successful working with large companies. Michael shares his experience working with startups, both as an advisor and from the enterprise perspective. He provides practical advice and direction on how to approach enterprise businesses as a legitimate growth channel. Questions we answer today are, should you target large organizations as initial growth strategy? Why you shouldn't overvalue initial success with the large organization? How to identify the ideal enterprise company to work with, hint, they're more mature and formalized with their innovation strategies. Why startups should take a land and expand approach with enterprise orgs, but go in with eyes wide open. Why pilot programs can be effective. How to establish pricing and anchoring value and what not to do, i.e. free proof of concept projects. How to determine, establish, and agree on value-based outcomes how to find an internal champion, and why this could be the difference between success or failure, plus much, much more. Now, on to the intro. Welcome back. You're listening to Hardwired for Growth, a podcast dedicated to helping entrepreneurs and business owners who are looking for sustainable and scalable growth strategies, led by your host, Brett Trainer. Hi, Michael, and welcome to the show. Hey, Brett. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's good to have you here. I know you're joining us all the way from the northern suburbs of Chicago, right? Yep, yep. Wilmette, Illinois. In full disclosure, we're probably, what, 30 miles from each other, maybe a little bit further. I'm out in the western burbs, but on a good day, that may be 60 to 90 minutes, depending on traffic. But, but Yeah, I, that's pretty close. I think in the future, though... We should make the effort to uh, to get together and do this in person, but for now we'll we'll do it via via audio. So, again, welcome to the show. Yeah, the way I like to start this is not talk about job description and or title those types of things. The way I like to get the audience to get to know you is if you're at a cocktail party. I don't know if you go to a ton of cocktail parties, but when you meet somebody, how do you describe what you do to them? Uh, okay, uh, well. Uh, what I what I tell people is that I show companies how to be successful with uh, corporate startup collaboration. And what that means is that I work with both startups and corporations to be able to work better together. Uh, what I've found is that 
Uh, well, if you look at all the research, about 87% of corporate startup collaborations or engagements fail. And so I uh, spent a lot of time thinking about that and how, how it can actually improve that because it seems to be a really big problem uh, in the industry. And so what I've, I've done is come up with a model that focuses not on uh, what companies are offering or, and, and what they're going to do together, but how they actually operate and how they can operate successfully together. So it's really a focus on empathy, understanding the other party and how they work, how they operate, how, how they make decisions, and then developing plans and, and uh, partnering skills in, in order to, to accommodate that. So I spent a lot of time working with startups. Uh, my background is I've worked with a big company. Uh, I worked for Nielsen. I was in a bunch of global global roles. I spent a lot of time working with uh, startups. I started an incubator in Africa, India, and China. I started an internal Shark Tank, and really lo- just love the startup startup corporate way of innovating. Uh, I left about three years ago, and I started consulting mostly for startups, helping them with their go to market, and especially focusing on how do you actually penetrate big companies. And as I started really thinking about it, I started really focusing on the other side, which is the large companies, which are all making big investments in in startups as a way to innovate and helping them with their skill set, their their corporate culture, their their ways of running partnerships in order to work better with startups. Awesome. So that's what what I've been doing. Yep. And definitely the reason I wanted to have you on the show, the, the majority of my guests I have on, I have a pretty good understanding or have been in the role from practitioner or understanding how these types of engagements would help you know, drive growth, but this is definitely a, a new area for me. So that was definitely one of the, the major drivers to get you on the show. But I think what may help is maybe even define a little bit more for our startup audience that may not know what the, the collaboration with, with an enterprise is and I don't necessarily definition, but what does that look like if they're, they're not kind of familiar with that process? Yeah, so typically, uh, I, I, would, I, actually, I would define it very broadly. So anytime a company that sells to businesses it has to engage they have to engage with a big company in some form or fashion and it could be just selling a product it could be uh, partnering to co-develop something it could be a joint venture it could even be um, being bought and uh, what we found is that small companies they you know they have a certain set of, of ways of thinking about the world uh, especially um, you know how they, how they view risk how they how they operate in a much more quick fashion, and a lot of times these small companies aren't as familiar with how large companies work, which is uh, primarily focused on mitigating risk. <laughs> and, and as a result, what large companies typically do is they have a lot of people involved in every decision. Uh, they have a lot of processes. They do everything they can to mini- mitigate the risk. So everything takes a lot longer. They're not willing to take big bets. Uh, and a lot of companies just they the way they'll engage with a startup it. it um, they're looking for a certain profile, something that does fit their, let's say, their risk profile. So it could be a company that has been in, in, in um, business for 10 years and they have a, a successful operating history. And, you know, some companies won't even look at a startup. Uh, other, other companies are a little bit more risk tolerant and they have a, an infrastructure that can handle a little bit more risk and they're willing to take little bets here and there. And so there's a little bit more opportunities for companies that are a little bit small, uh, maybe haven't scaled as much and are a little bit earlier in their, in their life cycle. So when, when I define the engagement, it really is about the, the way that these companies, uh, they communicate, they, set, they mutually set goals, they sort of mitigate the risk, they develop relationships that are win-win. It's all those, those sort of soft skills that both sides need to recognize and essentially adapt to how their, their partner works in order to be successful. 
No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And really they are coming from two different worlds, right? Because when I, th- I thought about this initially before we had our kind of last conversation was I thought about it really from the enterprise side. You can see the value, right? The, you know, the, the enterprise are large. They're not very minimal. They don't move very quick. They're risk mitigators versus risk takers. And it's really hard to develop any either product innovation, service innovation within the existing structure, especially as the, the larger that they get, the tougher that it is. And I know one of the reasons why you had started your company was to help kind of marry the, the two, the enterprise with the startup. And so maybe to, to help pivot from definition to, I mean, I get the, the value from the enterprise, right? It gets them into different markets, different games quicker. Let's flip it and talk about it from, from the startup, right? There's, there's probably some risk for them heading down that path, but obviously there's, there's got to be some value as well. Yeah, so I, there's, a, there's a couple of points that I always emphasize to startups. Uh, so I, I would say there's, when I, I work with a lot of different startups of different types, and typically they're technology companies. And I'd say there's, different, there's probably three different tiers of maturity that companies have when they, they go to market with larger companies. The first basic tier is they've developed a product that they're enthusiastic about, and they think it's going to sell them itself, right? So all they have to do is go in to the, the, their customer and show them a demo. And it's going, to be, it's going to knock them off their feet, and it's going to mean a sale, right? And so that's, I would say, the, the first level. And, you know, obviously that probably not the most sophisticated way to go on. Uh, the next level up is that uh, the, the startup will spend time understanding the, the customer needs. So there's a lot of talk in the industry about developing personas. You know, what is the character of the person that's buying the product? What's the character of the person that is going to be using the product? Who is a decision maker? You know, um, understanding what their needs are from a, a, a product standpoint. So for instance, a company might be selling a, um, a product that monitors when a certain machine is going down, right? So they, they know that there's this, this need to have the uptime and make sure that there's consistency and that they can recognize when they're problems. So that would be the second level is, the, is understanding what the, what the need is and then developing a, p- a pitch to that, to that need. And then the third way is, uh, which I think is the, the higher order uh, way of thinking, which is what I advocate is think is understanding how the company operates, right? So for instance, uh, with that example on the on the machine monitoring system, uh, you know, I actually talked to a startup a couple of years ago. They were selling something into uh, there was a little startup, and they're selling something into GE. Okay, and they had they come up with a system that could tell when when uh, pipes on a uh, a certain type of system were freezing, and that was that was it was actually collecting ice on the outside of the pipe, and so that was obviously caused a lot of problems in the factory. So they did a little test in one of the nuclear plants in, I, I don't know where, somewhere out, out west. And, you know, it was, it was wildly successful. And then the, the startup came to me and they were, they were um, frustrated because the person that had done the initial test, the person they were working with was like a plant manager, a, a relatively uh, junior person inside the organization. And, and this company was frustrated because the, they, they couldn't get the, C, the, the CTO to call them back. <laughs> that once they had done this little pilot, and then the whole company would be interested in how and what they were doing, and they'd have have this great win. And uh, what I had advised them is, you know, you gotta you gotta, you gotta realize how things operate in these companies. That they that you know companies like like to start small, and then they, then you need to kind of land and expand as, as you grow, because that's how a company like GE really works. And the C, the CTO, 
you know, this could, you guys could have the greatest idea in the world, but this guy's worrying about half a billion dollar infrastructure plays. He's not worried about a, you know, a, a $50,000 or $100,000 issue in one of the little plants. And so a, a lot of the, the time when I, a lot of the work I spend is helping the, these small companies really think through that. And when they have a champion understanding what's the, what's really motivating the champion from a personal standpoint, what would you think about risk in particular? What, what do they find, uh, you know, investing in, in you as a startup is a risk, right? So how are you going to help them mitigate the risk? How are you going to make them look successful? And how are you going to understand how, they, how to navigate, how, how do you make sure you understand how to navigate actually to the company successfully so you can be successful? No, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And so if I'm, I'm hearing you correctly, it's really about, so if I'm a startup, I've, I've done my kind of homework, my due diligence, I really okay. understand the persona and the problems I'm solving within companies. I now approach somebody like GE or maybe somebody a little bit smaller and you kind of get that, that proof of concept or the pilot, you know, successful, right? It worked. Now, yep. do you advise these companies to continue just working with that one company or is this more of, hey, I validate Validated it, now I'm going into other organizations, or is there some combination of the two? Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's, it's important to have a really broad funnel, and I think any startup would want to do that. But, I, I, you know, I think the thing that startups struggle with is that they, they have very limited resources, right? right? And at my time at Nielsen, I ran into this all the time. Nielsen is the kingmaker. I mean, they are five times as large as any other company in their industry, and so we'd have companies all the time, little startups come to, to us all the time. I'd have them approach me all the time. And they were all really, you know, obviously they thought, hey, if I can do a deal with Nielsen, I'm going to be, this is going to be it, right? right. And, you know, what, what hap- there's a couple of things that happen with that approach. Is, is first of all, inadvertently, I would, I want to say I'd put these companies out of business, but <laughs> put a big hurt <laughs> on them just because, you know, if you're, if you're in a startup and you're, you, you, you've targeted a single company, to um, go after, I guarantee you spend more time in a week thinking about this big company, and this big company is going to be thinking about you in three years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you know what I mean? Like, you're, you're just such a, it, there's such a high priority for you, and you're a relatively low priority for them. And so it's important to really understand, again, like how they operate and like w- just what your, what your odds are so you understand how much you should really invest in any particular company. And, you know, I also advise startups that, you know, you don't necessarily need to bag the whale, right? So if, if right. you're starting out and, and there's a, you know, a GE or General Motors or, uh, you know, any of these big companies out there, you know, it, they obviously would be the best client for you to get because they're the biggest and they have most resources. But they also could be the biggest, the largest amount of work and the biggest resource stream on your company. And given that most startups have a, uh, a relatively limited runway, they have limited resources, you know, as a leader of a small company, you just have to think, you just have to kind of assess if that's really the right way to go. Because for every Nielsen, there's probably 20 other smaller companies right. out there that would be more likely to be customers, more interested in working with a small company and, you know, the advantage for the small companies and they can get some proof points. Right. And, you know, I remember again, thinking about my Nielsen days, uh, Nielsen would get very excited about startups and a lot of companies don't like that. Right. Like they, they really love the idea of working with startups. They're innovative. They're different. It's fun. It's more exciting than their humdrum everyday corporate life. I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> no, I think, yeah, I think you're going to go with kind yeah, of sorry. the shiny object syndrome for the bigger company, right? They get excited by the startups. It's different, but yet they oh, still yeah, have yeah. their day-to-day 
operating budgets to worry about and, you know, their monthly and quarterly objectives, right? No, actually, actually what I was going to say, sorry, is uh, even though the company might get really excited about it and they might want to talk to you and they might be interested or you're, uh, the person you're dealing with might be interested, it could still be that the company in the end is never going to do anything with you. You might be too small. You might not, you know, you might only be in market for a year and you're too risky, right? So even if like someone's getting all pumped up, if you're a startup and someone's getting all pumped up from the inside and they're getting all excited and, oh yeah, we're going to do all this and, you know, just run a free pilot for me and da, 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 da. You really got to take a step back and say, you know, is this really going to lead to something or are they only going to work with a company that's more mature than that they're a little bit farther along in their, their growth? Or do I really have a shot? And you just got to assess that and, and make your resource allocations accordingly. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, if I'm, I'm hearing you correctly, it really is having it well-defined, right? What, what the outcomes are versus just going and say, hey, this is our, <laughs> this is, you said, the, the whale and this is going to make our business. They'll buy, they can buy more than we'd sell elsewhere. But maybe the better approach is, you know, maybe a little bit more mature. You've got maybe some proof of concept in some smaller companies, then approach the, the larger companies. But, but being clear, and hopefully aligning objectives of both, right? I know as the, the startup, it's much yeah. more difficult to maybe get the, the larger company to commit, but any suggestions or recommendations or maybe where you've seen a startup successfully manage that relationship with, with a larger company, when does it work best? Well, again, I, it's really hard to say a blanket rule because what's happening in large companies is that they are, they're, you know, trying to be more innovative and many of them, and, and they're on, they're on different levels of, I would say their innovation maturity from some companies are just out there kind of looking like they just want to do something with startups. So they learn and they think they can then do it themselves. Right. So right. they're kind of on these fishing expeditions. And those are the kind of situations that if I were a startup, I'd probably be running the opposite direction. And then there's the you know, you kind of move up the, the scale. Like they, they might want to dabble, right? They'll, they'll want to try some stuff. And if it really works, then they'll try it again, you know, 10 times. You know, sort right. of thing. So they're, uh, they're not really, it's going to take them a long time to invest. And then there are companies that uh, are a little bit more advanced and they, they recognize that they, they really need to in, invest in startups and work with startups in order to expand and, and survive. And so they will... Uh, ha- often ha- they'll have some infrastructure around that. They might have a an incubator or a venture fund, or they might have a corporate development group that's specifically designed to work with startups, or they might have some um, operational people that are responsible for quote unquote innovation, and they work with and they have a little budget and they can do things with startups. And so that's the uh, it, you know it really depends. You really have to assess where the company is. I would say that uh, in my experience, though, the most successful companies, startups take a, a land and expand approach, meaning they start relatively small in bite-sized increments, and they, they uh, work to expand that relationship until it turns out to be something very substantial. And you know, I'll give you a couple examples of that. I, I'm actually working with a company right now. They were selling, they have a big... Uh, analytics platform. And they were in market talking to companies and trying to sell a half a million dollar system. Okay. And so they would not talk to any company that wasn't going to spend half a million dollars right off the bat. And they weren't especially successful with that. <laughs> it's just a very hard thing for to get companies, sure. especially IT folks to spend $500,000 site on team. 
And so what we, we have done is we pivoted them to have a more of a project-based approach where they can go into a business operator and offer a twenty-five dollars to $50,000 project. And the, and the, the good thing about the price point is what, what we determined is that's what the particular business operators that they're targeting have in their own budget. So they can spend it. They don't have money approvals. It's easy for them to do. And then for every uh, individual or group that runs one of these twenty-five, $50,000 projects, there's another 15 inside the organization that basically have the identical need. So the idea is, hey, if we can, if we can get, if we can get a, 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 an anchor in, into one of these groups and we can successfully prove ourselves out with a, with a low-cost project, then we have a proof point where our champion can then go to the other, these other groups and help us sell it into these other parts of the organization. And if you think that uh, there's 20 of these and you can get half of them, then all of a sudden you are at that half a million dollar point for the, the company as a whole. Right. So it's a little bit more of a methodical approach, you know, starting relatively small, uh, you know, kind of mit- it's mitigating the risk for the people that are investing in you by lowering the price point, making it quick, showing wins, and then giving them the ammunition to help them be a champion and, and, and help you sell throughout the organization. And so those are, those are typically the approaches I've seen work really well. Okay. And that makes sense. And, you know, the, the question you brought up or you didn't bring up that came to mind when you had mentioned that is with the, with the more project-based or pilot-based, which I 100% agree with, there's sometimes a debate whether to charge for that pilot or, you know, develop your proof of concept you know, pro bono, if you will. And I've been a big, not a big fan of the free because there's no skin in the game, but I love, you've got a whole lot more experience in this than, than I would. So I'd welcome your perspective. Yeah. I'd say pricing is like the number one <laughs> issue for any, any B2B startup. And the problem with pricing is it's just, it's completely opaque. I mean, nobody has any idea. I've never, I would say probably 99% of the time people just make the pricing up. <laughs> Literally, I mean, it's just, you know, whatever, it's almost like whatever you can get the person, the other side to pay. Uh, but that said, I, I'm with you. I am not a proponent of doing free work for companies because you're right. They, they don't have any skin in the game. And especially when it comes to a pilot. So if you're going to, if you have to do free work, don't call it a pilot because the pilot has certain connotations. It sort of, it, it, it sort of implies being a, a proof point, And if it works, you're going to, go on to something else, right? You're going to, you're going to go to the next level. And if, if you're just trying to prove that your product works, then call it a proof of concept or call it something else, you right? Know, blah, 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 but don't call it a pilot and, and make sure that you're, you're um, setting in the client's mind, the, the value of what they're getting and what a, what a cost, what the next cost would be. Right. So you want to make sure that they're uh, you're setting the expectations for when you do charge them what what they're going to be seeing. Um, so I'd say that there's actually two points I would make here. The first is if you're going to do a pilot, there's a couple of things you want to think about. One is you definitely want to charge them. Secondly, I would be very clear on what you what you expect to get out of the pilot. I mean, I've seen a lot of companies that will go do a pilot and they don't they basically don't have any success metrics tied to it. But I think you want to be very clear with your partner on what uh, what is success. And then what happens when you achieve success? So like in their mind, what is going to be the next step? If you hit these milestones, what's going to, what's going to happen next? And it might not be, oh, you know, you're going to get the million dollar contract. 
it might be, okay, we're going to expand or we're going to continue for another three months or whatever it happens to be. But just so you guys are both aligned on what's going to happen next. So setting the objectives is really important and making sure that there's there's a, a price attached to it. And then the other thing I, I always advise companies on the pricing is whatever you charge for a pilot, you might, you might say, oh, look, this is... Um, it's going to cost me $30,000 to do this pilot, but I'm just going to charge them 5,000 just so they have skin in the game. Uh, but it's really important to manage uh, the, the your customer's expectations on what the, on the pricing, right? Because I've seen examples where someone will do a pilot for a division and they'll charge $50,000, let's say, because, because of the pilot. So once it, so in the customer's mind, now they're thinking, Oh, great. Every time I do one of these in any, any of the other divisions, it's going to be $50,000, right? So then when they come, the pilot works and they come back and say, okay, we're going to expand to three other divisions and it could be $400,000. It's kind of like, what the heck? $100,000. So it's really important to, to the whole process to just manage expectations. And so uh, there's this concept called uh, um, anchor pricing where you basically say, look, this, uh, this is $100,000 worth of value. I'm going to charge you $10,000 because I just want to show you how it works. But just so you know, you get you get one hundred thousand dollars worth of value, right? It's just setting in their mind what they can expect, and, and it's really important to to remember that corporations like transparency on pricing, right? Like they have these budget cycles; they set the budget once a year or twice a year, or whatever, and they need to they need visibility into what something's going to cost them, right? And so that's one one thing that's really important to so make sure it's clear to them if they do buy this, how much it's going to cost them next year, and then also. Uh, the, the price that they get, it doesn't have so many different variables and inputs that it's impossible for them to figure out how much it's going to cost. So simplicity and transparency, I think, are ext- extremely important when you're doing pricing. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, especially in maybe not from a startup world, but I think the just to piggyback off that a little bit is, to your point, not just to tell them what the value is, but even in your proposal, if it's a you know, $100,000 engagement, but you're only going to charge them twenty five, dollars in the, the proposal, it's $100,000 minus seventy for friends and family or whatever you, you want to yeah. call it, the discount. But so it's in there that it's set into your point anchor pricing, which I think is, is really good advice. And I think a lot of the startups that are, don't necessarily have that, they just want to get the, you know, pen on paper and get it signed and, and get started. So I think, and to the, uh, the simplicity is huge. Don't, don't, don't outthink yourself. Right. <laughs> yeah. There's this great article on anchor pricing I read. Uh, you can probably find it. Uh, it was about Apple. How Apple is the master at anchor pricing. So they're talking about how Tim Cook or even Steve Jobs did this. Like he would go up with a, you know, introduce the iPhone, right? So yeah, the initial iPhone was like $700 or something. It was ridiculous because the cost of a phone at that time was like 70 bucks. And he said, this is, if you were to get all this functionality in a PC, it would cost you $3,000, right? But we're only going to charge you $600. Right. So, and apparently they do that for everything. So they just launched this new like super power monitor that's like $3,000 for a computer monitor. But the way that if you, if you go back and you look at the at Macworld, the way they introduced it is, this is $12,000 worth of monitor. $2,000. <laughs> so it's like the psychology of pricing and how you talk about it. It's really important. Yeah, I'll I'll actually find that article, or if you can find it, send it to me, and I'll add it to the uh, the show okay. notes. So people can can find it, but uh, yeah, that's that is sure. so true. It's cr- establishing that that value up front. Um, yep. so we're starting to run a little bit low on time, but the one thing I do want to yeah. circle back for uh, startups that are considering this approach with the larger companies. One of the things that I heard from you is 
probably looking for the more progressive enterprise companies that that actually have some structure or processes in place for that type of that type of work is one one if you could validate that and then two yeah. what are some things that maybe we haven't talked about that you know I'm an owner I'm looking to head into this thing that I should have my eyes wide open and beyond what we, maybe what we've talked about I should be considering that hey here's potential strategy for me maybe it's not Nielsen maybe G somebody that's a possibility what are the you know the three or four things that they really should keep on, in consideration to you know kind of tie this back off you know, with our with our conversation yeah uh, so I think I've talked about a lot of them I I, I think uh, um, you know just to, to reiterate a couple points in a little different way uh, one of the things I would make sure is just when is when you have a, a champion or somebody you're working with, uh, driving them. Like, what's going to make them successful personally? And, and I, like, for instance, I gave a talk on this this topic at a, a conference, and I, I said, you know, I would um, I would go in when you're talking to your champion, ask them their their what are their personal goals and objectives for the year? Like, what do they need to accomplish? And a, a venture capital friend of mine raised his hand and said, you need to tell me that when you were at Nielsen, if someone asked you your goals, you would have told them. I said, yeah, of course I would. <laughs> so it could only help me out. <laughs> right. And I said, but but in ten years I was there, nobody ever asked. Interesting. Um, so I, but I would. There's there's no reason you shouldn't ask that, and and that's what you should be trying thinking about. Is like, how am I going to help my champion be successful? Because that's only going to mean that I'm going to be more successful. The other uh, point I would make that we haven't really talked about is that. A lot of these companies, like you mentioned, they do have uh, infrastructures to, to work with startups. Um, but a lot of times as a, as a startup leader, you're going to end up talking to an operator inside the company. And this, this individual may or may not have any experience working with small companies. I've run into the companies that get almost put out of business because they can't even get a PL purchased. And their champion doesn't even know how to, how to, uh-huh. who to call in finance, right? So... I would just, I, I would really spend time making sure you understand how to get stuff done in the company, like, and, and make sure you have somebody who can guide you through just the mechanics of working with the company, because it can be incredibly frustrating. I run into this as a consultant where companies just, it slips through the, the cracks and you don't get paid for 90 days. You're like, you know, I got to put food on the table. And, yeah, you know. right. right. <laughs> You know, but but you know, you just you got to remember you're sort of an afterthought, and, you, and it's just really important to really understand how to navigate the company. What do you need to do? What are the the processes you need to do just to be successful? And then third, I, I think this land and expand strategy is really solid. I've, I've worked with companies a number of times on it. It it works. It really matches how big companies work and how they think. And so I would really advocate thinking through how you how you as a small business can can do something very similar. I think it, in the long term, it, it, it really brings a lot more success. And then also in the short term, you can get some real good wins under your belt uh, to kind of prove your success. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I just want to go back just a second to the to how the process works. Because even in, when I've been in enterprise roles, working with other companies, to your point, it can be 90 days and there's absolutely nothing wrong as you're going through that says, hey, if we agree on what this looks like, you know, what should I be aware of? What is the pricing? Do I have to get approved as a vendor? Just so you right. know up front, this is going to take 30 days, no matter how smooth it goes in, in order to get that. Right. I think that's great advice. And then the last one, I love the the land and expand. Don't be, don't shoot for the home run, you know, get those wins and build upon those wins. I think that that's, that's great advice. So perfect chance to segue. Now what I like to do is go to more of our lightning round, if you will, where I get, give the audience Uh-oh. a chance to, to get to know you a little bit uh, better um, before we close it out. So are you ready? Uh, sure. 
<laughs> All right. So what do you like to do when you're not helping other businesses grow? Uh, well, what I like to do in my free time, I just love being outside. So anything outdoors, whether it's biking or um, kayaking or hiking, uh, I love to travel. Just love getting out of the office and being outdoors. I think that's so important and so true. You and I think a lot yeah. alike in that area. So cool. All yeah. right. So number two is kind of a two-part question. It was originally a one-part, but I've got some feedback after our initial episodes that say, why don't you ask your guests what they're actually reading or what they would recommend from you know, information or, or podcasts? So part one, which I'd like the question to begin with, is what would you highly recommend? It, it doesn't have to be a book, but you, know, you just mentioned outside. So what's one thing you would highly recommend to anyone? I would say maintaining balance. Yeah. So at least for me, like I, I really find that work-life balance is important. Uh, you know, spending time with my family You know, I know being an entrepreneur myself now, it's just very easy to kind of get caught up in the business, be working on it, you know, 25 hours a day. <laughs> and it, it's really important to be able to step away and do other things, you know, whether it's take vacations, just hang out with your family, whatever it happens to be. You know, I think, I think it just helps you have be healthier and much more productive when you are working. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's great advice. And then, you know, said part two of that, are you reading or have you read anything recently uh, that you'd recommend to folks you found really interesting? Yeah. So I just, uh, just finished the uh, biography of Leonardo da Vinci. Really? Okay. Actually. Yeah. It was very interesting. I can't remember the author's name right now, but he had written uh, biographies on Steve Jobs and uh, uh, Albert Einstein. So he's a, done a lot of work on innovators. And the interesting thing about Leonardo, there were a couple of takeaways I had. First of all, it's just very fascinating. Okay. Uh, and and, and uh, what Da Vinci had done is uh, he had kept diaries throughout his life, like hundreds, of, hundreds and hundreds of pages, and somehow they ended up getting preserved. And so this guy was basically able to, to uh, piece together his life just based on his diaries. So first of all, the guy was a genius. He was hundreds of years ahead of his time. Like uh, the one story that stuck out is he basically came up with Newton's theories of mo- uh, three theories of motion, or whatever they are, a hundred years before Newton did. Wow! But the the so the other lesson of it is that he, uh, he had these great ideas, but he never published them or he never made anything of them. So they were like sitting in his notebooks, but he never he, he just liked thinking for thought's sake. So he had a lot of great ideas, but he never really made them happen. And uh, there, there's a whole list of these inventions and theories that he had come up with. And I, I can see that in modern day life, how that, that really applies, that you, know, you can have a lot of great ideas, but a lot of it's just the execution and actually making them happen. And, you know, this guy was as creative as, as anybody. Um, and so it's just a very fascinating read from a personal standpoint, but also I think from a business standpoint, there's some very interesting lessons. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm actually going to go pick that up. I actually, did you read the one on Jobs and Einstein as well, or is this the first of the, his biography? <laughs> no, this was the first one. Okay. This was the first one, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Uh, I'll also put that in the, in the show notes as well. And last call, what is okay. your drink or beverage of choice? Oh, coffee, of course. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing exciting. Lots of coffee. Yeah, you and me, both, especially in the morning. I get started every day. Excellent. So anything else that uh, you want to discuss before we wrap this up, Michael? No, I think this has been very interesting. I love talking about this. As I've mentioned to you, I, you know, I'm obviously very happy to discuss, you know, my theories and my background with, with folks. If anyone needs any help with any of this stuff, I'd be happy to take a call and, you know, give, give my thoughts and see if there's any way I could help. Awesome. You so, I really appreciate your time. Into what, uh, you know, if anyone's interested in learning more, you know, where's the best place for people to find you? 
Oh, sure. So uh, I have a, a, my company's name is InnoEQ, www.innoeq.com. And so there's information on uh, some of the analytics we've done around uh, corporate startup collaboration uh, that you might find interesting. And then it also talks a little bit more about our philosophy and some of our work. So that'd be the easiest way. Awesome. I'll actually include that in the show notes and really appreciate you taking the time. Like I said, this is a newer topic for me. So I learned quite a bit. Hopefully the audience learned quite a bit and uh, make sure you guys take advantage of these, these different channels. So appreciate your time. Have a, a great rest of your day, Michael. And I know you're heading on vacation here shortly. So, so enjoy some downtime. Yep. Thanks. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate it. This was fun. All right. Take care. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to Hardwired for Growth. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit brettrainer.com. That's B-R-E-T-T, followed by his last name, T-R-A-I-N-O-R.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.